Welcome, everybody. Great to have you here. We come to our time in God's Word now. And I, I, I suppose that, uh, that you, like me, have had an imaginary conversation with somebody. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where in your mind, you, you sort of imagine when you are you know, going to talk to this certain individual, especially if you're upset with them about something. Then you have these imaginary conversations where you say, I'm going to say this, and then he's going to say that. And then when he says that, I'm going to say this, and oh, I'm, it's so going to get him. And then I'm going to like win the argument, and he'll acknowledge that I'm, I'm right. And so we play these games. You know what I'm talking about? First service, they all nodded their heads. I get none of that this service right now. Uh, imaginary conversations with people. I find they actually, they, they work out better in my mind than in reality, but it's, it's kind of helpful to do them. In the ancient world, there was a form of argument that was essentially that. It was a conversation, it was a, an argument where you imagined or anticipated what your opponent was going to say to what you said, and then before they say it, you give what they were going to say, and then you give the answer to that. Did you follow that? Okay, first service also was much clearer on that point. <laughs> but it's called this. It's called diatribe, okay? Diatribe. We might call it like a Q&A, where you know what that person's going to be thinking and maybe questioning, and then you give the answer to it. And Paul uses, Paul was, you know, like Harvard-trained, uh, educated, highly educated man, Paul uses diatribe throughout the book of Romans where he anticipates you might be thinking this and now here is the answer to that. And we have a passage before us today where he uses this diatribical uh, argument and we are in chapter three, verses one through eight is, the, is our text today. As I got into my studies, I read two scholars that said, this is one of the most difficult passages in Romans. And as a pastor, you read that and you're like, oh, great, I get to teach it in three days, and it's a tough one. So we've got a, a little bit of a toughie here today. There's lots more toughie to come, but I warned you when we began Romans, this one isn't for the faint of heart, okay? So chapter three, verses one through eight, and uh, I'm going to try to make this plain and understandable, but before I read it, I want to, if you turn my mic up a little bit, I would appreciate that. I'm a little weak in the voice today. Before I read that, I want to remind you that in chapter 2, what, what Paul has just got uh, done saying is that these Jewish Christians in the church who might have thought to themselves, we are a little bit better than these Gentile Christians in this Roman church, he says to them, you need to realize that you're in the same boat as the Gentiles. You say that you're a special people, that you, you, know, you have the law, but it's not having the law or hearing the law that makes you justified, it is doing the law that makes you justified. And since all of your Israel, Israel history is, is a story of not doing what God says, then you, along with the Gentiles, are all in the same boat. You're all sinners, you're all in need of Jesus. That's where this is going. So the whole chapter presses the point that the Jews who had received the law are guilty, in fact, even more guilty because they are sinning against greater light than the Gentiles had, who all they had was the bullfrogs and the butterflies. The Jews had the, uh, the Torah, the Old Testament law, and yet they disobeyed. So both are justly condemned as sinners. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. Everyone 
is a sinner. There is none righteous, no, not one. Now, the Jewish protests will not go down easy, and that's why I've entitled this message, Mr. Synagogue Confronts uh, Mr. Apostle. And what I mean by Mr. Synagogue is sort of that Jewish perspective on the gospel and the challenging questions that Mr. Synagogue would have for Paul. And then Paul anticipating those objections and diatribically responding to them. So let me read the text today. It's Romans 3, verses 1 through 8. Here is what God's word says. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our righteousness, our unrighteousness, serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some slanderously charge us as saying their condemnation is just? May God bless his word to his people today. And if you were following it with that, this is one that, uh, just to get an initial sense of it, I had to read through a few times in a few different translations because there's a lot of wordiness to this one, and, but there's a lot of wonderful truth. And there are a lot of questions. Did you notice that? I counted eight questions in eight verses. Now, not all of them are the diatribe questions, but the diatribe ones, these Mr. Synagogue ones, uh, Paul is anticipating these objections that the Roman Jewish Christians would have to the gospel. Now we could ask, how would Paul know what they were thinking? Well, remember, what is Paul himself? A Jew, raised in, in uh, the strictest sect of Judaism. We know that he was a Pharisee. We know that he was uh, highly educated, highly trained. On top of that, we know that his pattern of ministry, everywhere he went, he'd go to Ephesus, he'd go to, you know, Philippi, the first place he went was the synagogue. He would go to the synagogue and he would preach the gospel and he would debate the Jews. And typically what would happen is there would be some strong contention and he would say, okay, well, I'm gonna go evangelize the Gentiles in town now. And he would leave the synagogue and off he would go. But we know from the book of Acts that over and over and over again, Paul was engaging Jews with the gospel. And so he was very familiar with the objections that these uh, individuals would have. And so these are not, like he's not just pulling these out of air, he's heard them before. It's kind of like, uh, you know, we have these things here at our church where new people, you know, we sort of welcome new people and, uh, you know, the Discover Bethel or guest reception or we have uh, people, new people over to our house for pizza oftentimes. And, and at these gatherings I'll say, okay, well, you know, does anybody have any questions about the church, you know, our doctrine, why we do what we do, you know, any, any questions about anything. And I, oftentimes I'll say, and no worries because I've done this so long, I've heard all the questions, okay? There'll be no surprises. Inevitably when I say that, somebody asks a question, I've never heard it before. It's like, oh, well, now that is a new one, thank you. But 
for the most part, the questions are predictable that people have when they come to our church. And similarly, the questions, or really the contentions that the Jews would have, were fairly predictable. And so Paul captures now these contentions, and he addresses them by anticipating them in this diatribe fashion. And these questions include, well then, if the gospel is true, what good is it to be a Jew? If Jews were unfaithful, can God be unfaithful too? If God is glorified by forgiving our sins, shouldn't we sin more? So what, Rome, what these verses are for us, it's, it's kind of like a sampler platter of what is to come later in, in Romans, or like Taste of Chicago, where you go up there and there are all these little booths, right, with these little restaurants, and you get to sample the menu. It's a sample of the fuller dining menu in the city of Chicago. That's what these verses are. They're a little sample of things that he is going to explore much more deeply in later chapters, especially in Romans 6 and in Romans 9. Okay, so let's just walk through these questions. Okay, that's how we're going to handle this today. Verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Or to say it this way, if the gospel is true, what good is it to be a Jew? Now this question flows from a basic assumption that the Jews had that to be Jewish was a very special thing. And the reason that they thought this was from the day they were born all the way growing up every day at the synagogue, they were reading verses that told them that they were God's chosen people. Their peculiar worship was uh, different than everybody else because they're God's special people. And there are all these verses that they were memorizing about God's promises to the descendants of Abraham, and they saw themselves ethnically as being in that line. Now what Paul has just said in Romans 2 is that it doesn't matter what your DNA is, it's what your spiritual DNA is that matters. That a real Jew is not one who is one outwardly, but who is one inwardly, the law written on their hearts. You could hardly say anything more inflammatory in a synagogue than to walk into the synagogue and say, you're not good with God just because you're Jewish. Now I'm Dutch, and I happen to think it's pretty special to be Dutch. And the Dutch people said. Okay. You meet a Dutch person, and likely there's a little bit of pride in, in being Dutch. Now, if you're Scottish here and you're going, oh, those Dutch, they're so proud, uh, so are you, okay? So, <laughs> all your kilts and all your things. And really, no matter what your ethnicity is, likely there's some pride that you have in whatever you are. And here's the thing. You don't have any verse in the Bible telling you it's special to be that. And yet we have all of this ethnic pride. Imagine if you have an entire Old Testament that largely is telling you that you're special. You're special in God. You have special favor from God. Imagine the sort of ethnic pride that you would have and how easily you could just think, man, I'm good with God because I'm a descendant of Abraham. And so you're reading through this and Paul just brings that up. So what good is it to be a Jew? And based on what he has said so far, you would expect for him to say, none at all. And yet that's not what he says. What does he say? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with 
the oracles of God. Now that word oracle is a broad word for the, the words of God. It's talking about the Old Testament. It's talking about the way that God revealed himself to Israel, through to the nation of Israel, and did so over and over and over again, beginning with Abraham, and saying, I'm, I'm gonna make a covenant with you, and I want you to look at the stars, and I want you to realize your descendants will be like the stars of heaven. And I want you to consider the sand of the seashore. Your descendants will be like the sand of the seashore. And not just Abraham, but Isaac and, and Jacob and Moses and you know, all of the prophets again and again. Who did God speak through? If, if, look, if you have a Bible, the first two-thirds of the Bible, it's all Jews. It's God speaking to Jews, through Jews, to us. Those are all the oracles of God. And what Paul is saying is, it's a very special thing to be stewarding the words of God. And that God spoke to the Jews, spoke through the Jews, is a very special thing. However, just having the words of God and hearing the words of God doesn't mean that you're right before God. You have to do the word of God to be right before God perfectly all the time, and nobody's ever done that, which is, again, why we need the grace of God in Jesus. Amen? All right? So to receive the word of God and to be entrusted with those oracles puts Israel in a very special place in God's redemptive plan. He later in Romans is going to talk about how Israel is the tree and that Gentiles are, we're the ones sort of grafted into this tree and that there should be a mutual appreciation for the unique role that each of us have in God's redemptive plan. But here he just brings it up. What good is it to be a Jew? You have the word of God. What a very precious thing. Side note application, do you have a Bible? You have the oracles of God. You have the oracles of God. Do you have Jesus in your heart? He is the Logos, he is the word of God that dwelt in the beginning, who was with God and was God. We have the word of God as well. If it was special for the Jews in the Old Testament, it's an incredible privilege for us in the New Testament. Good place for a big amen on that, okay, all right. So, Second question he brings up, if Israel has been unfaithful, does this say something about the faithfulness of God? Here's how he says it in verse three. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now that sounds confusing, but basically what he is saying here is, is this. If God enters into a promissory relationship with Israel and Israel ends up deported to Babylon and Assyria, what does that say about God? Was that an epic failure? Was Israel an epic failure? God tried to make it work through Israel, but then Israel failed him and then he failed Israel. Is there something about this experiment? Was it an epic, divine failure? God's Waterloo. And Paul's response here couldn't be any stronger. By no means is what he says. And we would say it this way. No way, Jose. Or to Jewishize it. No way, Hosea. <laughs> now that just came to me first service. I decided to use it second. So was that okay? Okay. No way, Hosea. But the point is that he's just emphasizing 
Absolutely not. And then he quotes from Psalm 51, which is, if you're familiar with Psalm 51, is David's confessional prayer after he has adultery with Bathsheba. And even in that psalm, David acknowledges that God's words and judgments are true. That's the point that he's making here. Okay? David failed God. God didn't fail David. And David acknowledged that God's judgments are true. But what of Israel's failures? Okay? And the point is this, is that man's failure is no indication of God's failure. Man's failure is no indication of God's failures. These oracles that he has just referenced, if we had time and wanted to stretch this series into like infinity, we could go into the Old Testament and we could look at all of these covenantal relationships that God entered into with Israel. And typically they sounded like this. If you are faithful to me, I will make your barns overflowing with grain, right? Your, your vats of wine will be overflowing. I will, I will subdue all the enemies around you. You will be a choice nation amongst all peoples and things like that. That's like the promise that God makes. But it also, those same Covenants will say this, if you fail to do what you're promising to do today, this is what's going to happen, okay? You're gonna be starving, and the Philistines are gonna come, and they're gonna take you over, and your children are gonna be killed, and, and your horrible things are gonna happen to you if you are unfaithful to this covenantal relationship. In other words, it was conditional. God entered into conditional relationships with Israel. So what happens in the story? Israel, over and over and over again, is unfaithful. They are not fulfilling their side of the bargain. And so God keeps his promise not to bless them, but to curse them. And all of the story in the Old Testament of Israel, over and over and over again, Israel suffering, and then the grace of God coming and a judge or whatever, But the story is not God being unfaithful. He is being faithful to what he said he would do. It is man who was unfaithful to God. That doesn't mean that God is not true. God is unfaithful. God's faithfulness is absolute. In fact, I love that line there. If every man on earth was an abject liar, God still is true. In other words, don't don't develop your theology from your anthropology. Don't look at man and say, well, this is maybe is what God is like. No, man is always unfaithful in the end. God always faithful. And God's faithfulness is not derived from whether or not we or an angel or a demon or Satan or Adam and Eve or anybody is faithful to him. Now, I want to do a little tangent right now. And I, I want to do this because we have some difficult plowing ahead in Romans. Especially in Romans 9. And the sooner that we can get this truth in our kind of understanding of God, the easier it is going to be for us to swallow some of the more difficult doctrines that are taught in the book of Romans. So let me diatribically ask a question. Why? Why is God faithful to his promises? Now, you might say, well, he's faithful to his promises because he's faithful. Like, that's what he's like. Yes, he's faithful, but why is God faithful? Why is God true? And at the underlying basis of who God is, is that God's principal commitment is to his own glory. 
Okay, let me say that, emphasize it again. God's principal commitment is to his own glory. One commentator made the point that that even understanding what God's righteousness is, that most basically it is a commitment by God to always act according to his character, or to say it this way, that God will always act to preserve, protect, and proclaim his own glory. Now, there are so many verses that I could take us to in this. I'm just gonna do one. Isaiah 48, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now, the Jews read verses like this, and they thought to themselves, aha, this means that God is always going to bless me. And they looked at that relationship, that uh, legal commitment, and all they saw was blessings. And yet, at the bottom of God's commitment is not to bless Israel. It is to proclaim, preserve, and protect his own glory. And since God is always true and is glorified by acting truthfully according to his word, Israel suffered covenantal curses. That even as they are being deported to Babylon, God is being glorified for being true to the word that he said. Did you follow that? Israel thinks God wasn't faithful to us. Look, we're being taken away to Babylon. And yet God is being glorified for fulfilling the word that he said. Now we make this mistake all the time, friends. We think that because I'm a Christian, that I, God owes me a happy life. That God owes me a blessed life. That God owes me a cancer-free life. That God owes me children who grow up and act perfectly and do everything that I think that they should do. That God owes me success in my vocation. That God owes me a general sense of peace and happiness because after all, we are the people of God. We are the Christians. And we think that God is fundamentally about making us glorious. And that is a mistake. It's a, it's a twist on the prosperity gospel, frankly, because God does not do what he does primarily in order to make us glorious. Rather, he does what he does to make himself glorious or to unveil that glory, okay, in all of the universe. And getting that difference is going to help massively when we get to Romans 9 and the doctrine of divine election, which is going to say that God has sovereignly designed objects of mercy to honor his mercy and objects of destruction to honor his wrath, his justice, and his holiness. Yes? Are you with me on that? Okay. I want you to get thinking that way to minimize the nasty letters Romans 9 will produce. Much more on that to come. Okay, now, we know that we're tracking with Paul because of the next question that he brings up in this little diatribe. Okay, Mr. Synagogue is thinking to himself, wait a second, if you're saying 
that our sin God is using to glorify himself, then why not sin more to bring more glory to God? Now here's how he says it, verse five. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. And that little paraphrase there, basically he's apologizing for even having to write this. He doesn't agree with it. He's just saying, this is the way that, that you are thinking. And indeed, Mr. Synagogue was thinking this way. So Paul, you are saying that we're saved by God's grace, right? And not by obeying the law. Yes, but our sin, then, is a tool that God uses to magnify his grace. Yes. Well, then how can God judge us if we are actually helping him be glorified more? Why, why judge us forever in hell if we're actually glorifying God by our sin? And if that's the case, let's sin as much as we can. Hey, guys, Paul's saying that God's glorified. If we sin more, let's, let's get sinning. <laughs> Paul addresses this deeper in Romans 6. But notice that he denies this by another, by no means. No way, Jose. Oh. That's not what I'm saying. And what Paul does here is he shows the absurdity of this line of reasoning. Hang here with me. If God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us, in other words, if God sins by judging us for being sinners, then God can't judge anybody. And in the end, all you have is not a judge who can give either a positive or negative judgment. All he can do is give a positive judgment. A rubber stamp, you're good, you're good, you're good. You send a ton, you're good, you're good, you're good. You take away the rightfulness of a negative judgment, you don't have justice. And if you don't have justice, then God can't judge the world. And the reason this was effective is that the Jews had a basic tenet that God did judge the world, especially those bad Gentiles. And for you to follow this line, Mr. Synagogue, would require you to deny a basic tenet of your own belief system. He goes on, verse seven, but if through my lie, now he's talking about himself, my gospel that you think is a lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? In other words, he turns the logic back on them and says, well, if this is what you think and you think that I'm telling a lie, then why are you mad at me? Because my lie is glorifying God just like your sin is. Okay, so he turns it back on them as some people slanderously charge us with saying. Mr. Synagogue basically saying this, why not just do evil that good may come? Okay, why, in, in argument we talk about this, this is the end justifying the means, okay? So if the end is that God is glorified, then that justifies the means to the end, which is my sin, which means that let's get sinning and let's do as much sin as we can, that God may be glorified. Amen, amen. I wonder how that'd go with like open mic testimony time. 
I came to realize that God's glorified my sin, and for the last year, I've been sinning as much as I can. <laughs> How many of us would go amen to that? <laughs> now, here's Paul's answer. I'm just going to read it briefly. Romans 6, verse 1, where he addresses this again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And there's more of that uh, to come. But all of this is setting the stage, this, this diatribical back and forth. It's setting the stage for what he says in verse 9 and following, which is basically this. Gentiles sinned against the law that they had in the bullfrogs and the butterflies and the sunrise and the sunset. The Jews had the Old Testament Torah. They sinned against that law over and over and over again. So what it means for the Jews and what it means for the Gentiles is that there is none righteous, no, not one. That's where it's going. He's got to convince the Jews that they're sinners. He's got to convince the Gentiles that they're sinners so that the bitter taste of sin might make the juice of the gospel of Jesus sweet to them. So the result of this is that the Gentiles are not righteous. The Jews are not righteous. There's none righteous. And that includes you and me here today. Because you are either a Jew or you are a Gentile. So this passage is talking about each and every one of us. Now let's spend a little time in application. Okay, that's my exposition of it. Let's talk a little bit about application today. Here's my first application from what Paul is saying here, is that we must not trust in Jesus because Christians or people are awesome. We must trust in Jesus because Jesus is awesome. Let me say that again. Do not trust in Jesus because Christians are awesome. Trust in Jesus because Jesus is awesome. As Jews were unfaithful to the Old Testament and represent man's failure to fulfill God's requirements, we Christians are in the New Testament a living, breathing example of ongoing unfaithfulness to a faithful God, and specifically to a faithful Savior, Jesus. New Testament Christians, you know, I love you, I hope you love me, but we're pretty much all in the same boat, are we not? We're striving, we're trying, we believe in Jesus, but there isn't a single person here that if you were to get up close to their life and live with them and hear our words and know our thoughts and see how we actually do life day in and day out, there isn't a single person here whose life alone would lead somebody to come to the conclusion that Christ is awesome. Why? Because we are all ongoingly unrighteous. Christianity is not that you become a Christian and then you become righteous in everything that you do because you're so awesome. No, God loves us in spite of the fact that we ongoingly are sinners. The grace of God in our life. And what that means then is for people who are wondering about whether or not Christianity is true or whether Jesus is a savior that I should trust in, Oftentimes they look to the, the, the Christians that they know or that they perceive in the church or in the community, and so often what do they see? Brokenness. They see 
contradictions between what we claim and how we live. And they come to the conclusion then that there must not be anything to it. Because these people seem to be, you know, a lot like me. And I don't even have Jesus. You're like, okay, where is this going? Here's where it's going. When Bill Maher gets on his HBO show and mocks Christianity because of the Christians that he knows, he is doing what so many people do. They look at the church and they say, why would I want to be a part of it? It's filled with hypocrites. Rather than us saying, we're not hypocrites, how much better to say, we're hypocrites, but Jesus is awesome. He's not a hypocrite. Don't trust in Christ because you think that being a part of a church is just awesome people being awesome with everyone else. That's not a church. It's fallen, broken, unrighteous, sinful people saved by the grace of God, striving to become more like Jesus, but doing so ongoingly, imperfectly, hypocritically, haltingly, three steps forward, two steps back. Or I think about people that grew up in a home that claimed Christianity and daddy sang the songs on Sunday and was a monster during the week. Or to think about how many people mock Christianity because famous fill in the blank who preached sermons on TV or who wrote books or was some, and then we find out X, Y, Z about his moral life. And down he goes in flames. How many people, if you remember the 80s and the 90s, how many people refused to even consider Christianity because of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and the whole PTL scandal? I mean, like 20 years, Christianity in America was indicted because of the actions of those two people and their enablers. And people said, look at that. There goes those Christians again. And my point is this, that If Mr. Synagogue or the detractors to Paul are saying that God is unfaithful and there's nothing to Christianity because of the epic failure of Israel, it is just like the church that is ongoingly imperfect. But that doesn't mean that Christ isn't awesome and a savior and worth believing in. And I'm sorry if you had a bad experience with a neighbor Christian or your family. I'm sorry about that. But in the end, you're dead. And you step into eternity. And in that moment, what your daddy did or didn't do will not matter. You stand before God. Either under his grace by faith in Christ or under his wrath, both of which glorify him, but only one saves you forever in heaven and grants to you eternal life, and that is faith in Jesus who is awesome. Second application is, and this is a corollary to the first, is that we must trust in God's faithfulness, not in man's. Let's trust in God's faithfulness, not in man's. We live in a very unfaithful world. People make promises all the time. Do they do them all the time? No. People say one thing, they do another. And all of this unfaithfulness by man should only strive to highlight the glory 
of the one being in the universe who always does what he says he will do. Israel bombed on the Mosaic Covenant. I mean, they could hardly have got it any worse. They promised, they re-promised, they walked through the Jordan River, took stones out, got on the other side, they promised again, they made a monument to the fact that we are promising that we are going to fulfill the covenant, and yet they did not. And the Bible goes on to describe Israel's unfaithfulness as a wife who turns into a prostitute. And I will spare you the graphic nature of the prophetic word, but I'm here to tell you it's incredibly graphic of a wife who basically is under a tree offering herself to any passerby. The Bible says that's what Israel is like. Israel the harlot. But don't think for a moment that God is that way. God isn't that way. And all of the hypocrisy of Christians and churches, none of that impugns at all the faithfulness of God. He is always faithful, always true. He always does what he says he will do. And this should strike both comfort and fear in our hearts. Fear in that God has also made promises to destruction, promises to punishment, promises that we would view very negative. He has made promises, and he remains absolutely committed to the negative. But he is also committed to the positive. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I will supply all your riches according to my riches in Christ Jesus. He who began the good work in you will carry it on to completion. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He that believes will never perish, but will have everlasting life. And on and on we could go with the promises that God has made to us, his people. And he will remain faithful to those promises, always. And all the unfaithfulness of everybody around us and ourself included, it's, it doesn't chip, a, there's no chip off the granite of the mountain of God's faithfulness. He is that. And we can rest our faith in the fact that he is always faithful and true. And so if you're a little wobbly today in your faith, or life has you a little unsure of things, where do you go? I urge you to go to the character of God and the promises that he has made. You can trust him. He is absolutely true. And all of the unfaithfulness of Satan and and the demons that fell with Satan and Adam and Eve and Jews and Gentiles and everybody that's ever lived, it doesn't change at all the granite of God's faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not as thou hast been. Thou forever wilt be.